Welcome to the call where we lead you to Christ through stories and teachings. Our guest today is Pastor Craig Ireland, and we'll be talking about grace, faith, and salvation. Please be sure to stay to the end of this interview for a word of encouragement. Craig, welcome to the call. Thanks for having me today, Nancy. It's great to be with you. So I know I'm calling you from Australia because, you know, you're originally a pastor from Australia, and now you live mm -hmm. in upstate New York. But you've been start. You've been serving the Lord for over twenty years in in various roles. Yeah. But your heart gravitates to grace, faith, and salvation. Mm -hmm. So, what is the difference between grace and salvation? Um, grace in salvation is something that these days uh, is is becoming less and less familiar for Christians to to consider salvation a work of God's grace. Or let me put it even more strongly, a work exclusively of God's grace. I think what we tend to see is moralism, sometimes even legalism, just begins to kind of slowly entrench its way in, in the way that Christians think about their relationship to God and their acceptance, more particularly before God. And uh, it's always great to be reminded that God receives us on the basis of works, yes, but those works are Christ's. Christ is the perfect righteousness. He has already appeared before God in our behalf, and he satisfied God. And now if we are united to Christ by faith, our acceptance before God is uh, is entirely on the basis of Christ. And that is, of course, a work of grace. We don't earn that. We don't work it. We don't merit it. We don't try and receive it as a wage for our labor or even religious duty. But Paul argues very compellingly in Romans that if it was a result of works, it wouldn't be called grace. It would be a salary. It would be your wages. But... It is all of God's grace. And I guess that's, you know, that's really what um, what we want to talk about. When it comes to salvation, we want to primarily emphasize God's action in saving sinners, ill-deserving sinners like me. And he does that according to his grace on the basis of Christ and all that Jesus has done. Mm -hmm. So what is the role of faith in salvation? Yeah, that's a great question, because then obviously if someone listens to me pontificate about grace for a while. At some point, they're going to want to interject and they're going to want to say, well, then what do we do? Like, what's our what's our response? What what is it that we do to activate God's grace in our life? And I think the Bible's response to that very clearly, very, very unequivocally is faith. Faith is an open hand. Faith is a receiving. Faith is a taking. Faith isn't a work. It, it, it isn't a labor. It isn't a striving. Faith is a resting in Christ. It's being able to look at Jesus and say, he's enough. He's done enough. He He's performed righteousness. He's gone to that cross and he's taken upon himself my debt, my shame, my sin, and all of those horrible things that had disqualified me from God's favor have now been, by Christ's merit and his His death, they've been overturned. And what's incumbent upon me, and, and not just me, but every sinner who is uh, confronted with this wonderful message of grace, is to receive it. That's that's what faith is. This is like, you know, Christmas morning was only a few weeks ago, and those of us that have kids, we know what it means to give our kid a, a gift, well-wrapped, and then they yeah, just tear through that wrapping, and, and they're quick to get that box open, and next thing you know, you digging in a rummage drawer for batteries, right? We all have been there. And that's the reality. Faith is faith is the hand that receives. And that's how faith comes into play in the relationship of us receiving salvation. Paul says in Ephesians that it's by grace, through faith, it's not of works, lest any of us should be found to be boasting. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this question. How does grace impact our lives? 
Yeah, that's right. Because grace isn't just, it's not just the initiator of our salvation and our acceptance before God. Grace is a daily experience. Grace is that grace is that motivator when we realize that God has taken us to himself uh, against all odds and, uh, and, and in spite of who we are in and of ourselves through our waywardness and our sin. And so then as we wake up every morning and we know that we've achieved righteous standing before God on the basis of Christ, according to God's grace, God then through that grace empowers us to live lives of stewardship and holiness and striving after Christ's likeness because grace isn't just the thing that brings us into a relationship with God. Grace then fuels and empowers our desire to want to repent, to want to get our lives right, to want to look at the example of Jesus in scripture and pursue that, to follow that, to, to see how we can live out our lives in glorifying of God. And so what grace does then in the life of the believer is it becomes an act of gratitude. We look at all that God has done and our thanks isn't just the Hebrews, author of Hebrews says, it's not just the fruit of our lips. It's certainly that, but it's then the, the deeds and the actions and the worship of our life, which is a life committed to God and his cause in the world. How can say I have faith that Jesus will save me? Yeah, I think this is such a, a great question. And this, I think, really is perhaps a, a more often than it should be neglected part of the gospel is that what qualifies us for salvation is actually our sin. It's actually our wretchedness. Sometimes as, as Christians and sometimes in church life, we kind of get a little caught up into thinking that God's out there and he's choosing the best and the brightest and the, the most qualified and the most religiously devout or the most intelligent or the highest GPA or the, you know, that, that's how we're thinking God's choosing his team. And then we go to the scripture and Paul says, particularly to the Corinthians, Paul says to them, look among yourselves, I'll paraphrase. Paul says, notice that among you, there are not many high and mighty and, and wise and powerful in the world's eyes because God is choosing the weak from among the world. God is choosing essentially the world's refuse. And that doesn't mean that the high and mighty and the wise can't be saved. They can, but they're only going to be saved through the same means that a, a wretch like me is going to be saved. And that is entirely on the basis of the merits of Christ and the goodness of Christ. And so this is this is how we qualify. If someone says to me, well, how can I be saved? I'm not going to ask them to look for something inside them or to try and find their qualification, except to say, Jesus has come to call sinners to repentance. Are you a sinner? And then rather, rather than us feel that shame of being sinful, because being sinful does, of course, incur shame. What the gospel does is it calls us to look upon that and say, that's the criterion for my qualification. It's only because I can recognize my sinfulness that God can apply the merits of Christ, forgive me of all of that, and sweep me up into this wonderful, gracious salvation. In fact, in this uh, in this book that I've revised by Spurgeon, um, by Grace Alone, Spurgeon has this wonderful line from a hymn that he quotes, and he intends to be provocative. The line is something to the, again, I'll try and paraphrase it, something like, a sinner is a sacred thing, the Holy Spirit has made him so, and the point of that is not to it's not to gloss over sin or try and varnish it and make out that sin's actually a good thing or that we should sin all the more, but rather to say uh, there's an element of shame in my sin, but in that is my qualification because Jesus said, just like a doctor doesn't go looking for healthy people to cure, Jesus says, 
as a savior, I've not come into the world to look for the righteous. I've come to look for sinners, of which, of course, we all are, and we're all in need of grace. So whether we're the high and mighty or the lowly and humble, grace is there for us all, as long as we are willing to own our waywardness mm-hmm. and appeal to Christ alone. Mm. So that brings me to the next question. What is the extent of God's grace? Yeah, the extent of God's grace uh, is is certainly God's grace in Jesus. The extent of that is to all and any who will call upon the name of the Lord. And so I don't want people to think, Nancy, that God has this God has this kind of cap, right? He can save so many and then he's run out. You know, the scripture talks about God's inexhaustible grace. Even some of the old hymn writers did a wonderful job at talking about God's boundless grace and and how the chasm of our sin must be seen to be swallowed up in the immeasurability of God's grace. So I, I would say to someone that asked, what is the what is the extent? What's the measure? What's the uh, how do we think about God's grace? I would say it's as boundless as his love and his benevolence. And uh, and that means that all and any who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the promise of the gospel. Mm-hmm. What is the what is the biblical definition of grace? Yeah, I think the biblical definition most plainly stated is unmerited favor, unmerited favor. And so what that means is that uh, God is holy. We know the scriptures are really clear about that. The scriptures are unapologetic about that, that God's eyes are too holy to look on sin, that God turns away from wretchedness, that, you know, the Psalms, the prophets have really kind of horrific language to talk about just how just how desperately God feels against wickedness, how how furious God can be. The major prophets talk about God's wrath like a, like a, like a boiling pot on the stove. It's, it's a slow boil. And then you might walk out of the room. We've all had this experience, right? And next thing you know, it's boiling over and there's sm- uh, steam all through the kitchen and it's a, it's a whole mess. And the prophets use all of these idioms and metaphors and languages to talk about God's justice. And so, Nancy, as we talk about grace today, I don't want any of this to make people feel like we're diminishing God's justice or his righteousness or his holiness or or we've kind of we've distorted God's image into some kind of like just big, you know, plush teddy bear. And that's all God is. The scriptures talk about a fearsome God, uh, an all consuming fire. The book author of Hebrews says it's a it's a fearsome thing. You know, God is a consuming fire. And so it's fearsome to fall in the hands of the living God. But the truth of the matter is, this is where grace comes in, because grace is unmerited favor. And so what God requires of each and every one of his creation is perfect righteousness, perfect holiness, impeccable obedience. And none of us have succeeded. None of us have been successful at achieving that. There has only been one person who has ever lived that has never failed in the least scintilla of God's law. And that is Christ, who is written as being holy, harmless and undefiled. And he takes upon himself our wretchedness and waywardness. This is we talked about this before and all on account of grace, not because he looked at us and he said, well, that guy or that girl or that man or that woman's worth saving. But he said, this is how much I love. This is how much I care. This is how much I want to restore and redeem and rescue. And Jesus, although perfectly law keeping, goes to the cross and dies the death that sinners deserve to die as a substitution in their place and opens the new and living way of the new covenant so that we can come not on the basis of our works or our merit, but Christ. So unmerited favor before God, nothing in me, 
merits God's favor, but Christ has. And if I'm united to him by faith, again, I receive all the benefits that God can bestow. Now, how would, you know, say I show grace to others? Yeah, well, in much the same way that God has extended grace to uh, each and every one of us that's received Christ, he calls upon us then to exercise that grace toward others because people are going to sin against us. And it's a little too easy sometimes when someone sins against us, they do us wrong. Maybe they talk about us behind our back at work, or maybe they go out of their way to hinder our progress in some way, shape or form. Or maybe something seemingly so small is just cutting us off in traffic and we kind of lose our our mind for a moment. You know, what, what God is calling upon us is to remember how much we've been forgiven because as Jesus taught us, those that are forgiven much love much. And so the grace that has been shed abroad in our hearts, we're called to extend that. Even we're called to lavish that upon others that, of course, day in and day out might inadvertently or might intentionally seek to harm or do some kind of a some kind of a disservice to us. That's what grace looks like in the life of the one that has a full cognizant realization that we've been forgiven much. We're able to love much because the love of God is fueled in us to exercise grace. Hmm. Well, let me ask you, what is the difference between grace and mercy? Yeah, that's that's wonderful. So as we talked about before, grace being unmerited favor before God, and we think about mercy, maybe more, it's easy to think about mercy in categories of legality, or or even if I, if I may push the uh, analogy a little bit, we think about mercy with respect to God and his sovereignty, God as the, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the highest throne, the highest judiciary authority, that is God. And God is able to be to be merciful. God is able to exercise mercy. Now, what the scripture tells us is that God can be both just and the justifier, both just and the justifier of the ungodly. So the mercy of God, he's, he's able to, to, to liberate us from the burden of, of, of the law and even the burden of atoning for our failure. That mercy comes on account of his goodness and his benevolence because he reigns as king, because he reigns as ruler. Now, just as we see in many modern democracies, many modern Western governments, the power belongs to the highest ruler of the land, be a president or maybe a queen or a king, to be able to deliver an amnesty. To, to be able to give a reprieve for a punishment if they so choose. And God, God, he, he, he reserves that right as the greatest of all king, but God in no way ever violates the perfection of his law. And this is why in the gospel, remembering that grace and mercy are two channels that flow from Christ, because only in and through Christ is God able to exercise and pour out his grace and mercy on the undeserving. You know Jesus like the back of your hand. So my last question is, how can I know that I am saved by grace through faith? This one feels particularly important, right? How can any of us know? Because, look, some of us have been Christians maybe for a few years, maybe a few months. Other of us, maybe a few decades. And even that particular believer that's maybe been following Jesus and serving Jesus for maybe all their life, maybe 70, 80, 90 year olds can think about giving their life to Jesus as a four and five year old. And I've met those dear elderly saints and what I've never met 
and I've been in pastoral ministry now for a couple of decades, I've never met that particular Christian that no matter how long they've walked with Jesus or how short they've walked with Jesus, uh, doesn't struggle with their assurance, their sense that they are forgiven, their their sense that they have secured salvation. There's always in our heart, in our flesh, in our life, just in the tumult of living in this world, there's there's room for doubt. And so I would say that having been in pastoral ministry now for well over two decades, probably the most common question I receive from very well-meaning Christians, I'm not talking about the way with the backsliding. I mean, the really devout, the really pious Christian is, how can I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'm saved? And I, I think probably my first approach to that is to say, maybe... Maybe the bar is a bit high. Maybe you shouldn't presume that we're going to know beyond a shadow of a doubt until we're beyond the grave, until we're in glory, until we're just transformed in the same way that Jesus is. We shall be like him. But there is a way in this life now to have what we call an assurance. It doesn't mean that as Christians, we should walk around struggling, moping, you know, head turned down, a tear running down the cheek because we're just so fraught with anxiety as to whether we know. And what I... What I always tell people that come and approach me and want to talk about trying to strengthen their insurance or strengthen their sense of security is look to Christ. It's look to Christ. Now, the truth is that particular imperative, look to Christ, it is the start. It is the middle. It is the end of salvation. So if there's someone even listening today and they don't even know Jesus, my my encouragement to them is to look to Jesus. He's enough. He's done enough. You can't look at Jesus and say, oh, I need a better law keeper because you're not going to find one. He is perfect. You can't look at Jesus and say, I need a more holy savior. You're not going to get one. He's perfect. You can't look at Jesus and say, I need someone to die a more substitutionary atoning death. You're not going to get it. He's perfect. He is fully satisfying every particular want of the law and salvation. Jesus is it. I remember an old preacher once, I I don't remember his name, but he once had this saying that I loved that he said, he said something like this. He said, Jesus on the cross in his death and his blood shedding was enough of a sacrifice to satisfy God in heaven. Why is it not enough to satisfy you and I? Why is it that we then still look for something else? We still try and work harder and we try and earn it or buy it or whatever the case may be. We should be able to look to Jesus and say, a sacrifice of that magnitude, that's enough. A life of that impeccable holiness, that's enough. And so if someone comes and says, I'm not a believer, how can I be saved? I say, look to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Call upon his name and be saved. And if someone comes at the very end of their life and says, you know, I don't know if I've got long left and I'm really worried that I'm not saved. And I may think, well, that's kind of silly because I, you know, maybe I've pastored this person for years. They lived a wonderful life. They've loved Jesus. And really, this is just fleshly anxiety. I would say the same thing. Look to Jesus. Do you see any lack in Christ? Do you see any fault in Jesus? Do you see any any crevice or crack or or area in Jesus where there could be an opening for the devil to steal salvation from you or even your own sins and, and failures and your own maladies and sicknesses? Is he not a good enough doctor, a good enough redeemer, a good enough rescuer? He's perfect. And so the perfection of Jesus is so sufficient and satisfying to God it covers a multitude of sins and even our struggle to trust him because we all have those 
those days. We all have those times. You know, the old theologians in the Middle Ages used to call it the dark night of the soul when you're just you're struggling to really get a sense of certainty. My advice is look to Christ and tell me if there's not anything in Jesus that you're wondering where there could be a blemish or a spot or any such thing. Peter says this in first Peter chapter one, any such thing, because the perfect blood of Christ satisfies the infinite justice of God and covers the chasm of our sins. And only there is true assurance found. Look to Jesus. I find that a lot of Christians come and say to me, Nancy, well, I've always struggled with my assurance. And I went and spoke to this preacher. I, I, I bought this book or, or, or I, I talked to this other friend and they told me to look inside myself and find. And I say, just stop. If you're looking inside yourself, you may sometimes get enough evidence to satisfy you and you may not. But if you're always looking to Jesus, trust me, you're never going to be dissatisfied. He is perfection personified. He is the glorious Savior. Well, you know, Craig, you wrote the book, By Grace Alone, A Heartfelt Word with Those Seeking Salvation by the Lord Jesus Christ. Craig, where can they get this book? Well, anywhere the good books are, are sold, of course, uh, Amazon. I think we all probably uh, use Amazon these days more than most other places, but you can find it in Barnes and Noble and, and most places like that. Uh, you can go ahead and find By Grace Alone. This was, as I, I, I probably should have mentioned a little earlier, this was a revision of a book written by Charles Spurgeon in the 19th century. And my obligation here, I, I don't mind people saying, Craig, you wrote this book, but I always feel like, oh, a caveat's important here. Uh, whatever good people find in this book, they should know it's the genius and the anointing of Charles Spurgeon. I've updated the language and revised it in such a way I think it's going to be a lot more approachable for a modern audience. I've been reading and studying Spurgeon for many years now, and I really think people will be so blessed by this. It's a simple gospel message, but it's perfect no matter where people are at. As I said, brand new believers or yet to be believers or they've been in Christ for decades. Grab this. You're going to be encouraged. You're going to be strengthened and you're going to be glad you did. So what would you like to leave the audience with today? Well, I think that I've probably <laughs> covered the, the main thrust of, of my heart today, Nancy. But if, if I could just repeat without, without seeming unbearable, I think it's look to Jesus. I think it's that we know that Jesus, born under the law, perfectly satisfied the law, and yet went to that cross and bore our shame, bore our sin, bore our reckless unrighteousness because of love to save us. And I would just want people to know if they don't know Jesus yet, or they've known him all their life, that love to Christ can always grow, can always expand, and his grace can be at powerful work in our daily lives. But the objective is always to look to Jesus, who, of course, although he was buried in the tomb, did not remain dead. But on the third day, he rose in triumph and victory over Satan, sin and self for all and any who simply call upon him for salvation. Thank you for watching the call. We hope you learn more about Jesus through this video. In Ephesians 2.8, it says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. You know, you can look to Jesus for salvation from eternal death. Won't you call upon the Lord to save you? Do you listen to the call of God? Because God speaks to you every day. Are you listening to the call?